Let's pray. God, whether Satan comes to buffet us and deceive us and try to keep us in addictions and all kinds of immorality, or whether suffering has come to us through death or through disease or other things that are in our world because our world is broken, Father, we know that it can be well with our soul because you are there. You've rescued our soul. You've, you've changed us from the inside out. And all of those holes that were mentioned earlier, all of those holes that were, were void and needed to be filled, you promised to, to fill them and to give us hope and to give us life and to give us joy and to give us a solid footing in life. And it begins with our belief in you. It begins with our belief that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins and to raise again. And so this morning, it's him that we want to proclaim and lift high. And I pray that we could do that well as we study your word now. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. Well, it's great to be back here with you this morning. And if you will take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke... We'll be finishing up a section here in chapter 4, Luke chapter 4. We're going to be here this morning, and just as kind of a a preparation for the next couple weeks, uh, we'll be taking a break uh, next Sunday and the week after to focus specifically on Easter and the resurrection of our Lord from the grave, and then Lord willing, uh, we'll return here to Luke and continue our study here in Luke. I'm going to be covering this morning... Luke 4, verses 23 to 30, but I would like to go back and start reading at verse 16, since this section captures a specific event uh, in the life of our Lord. And so uh, I want to read starting in verse 16 down to verse 30. One quick correction uh, from last week. Uh, When we get to verses 18 and 19, um, I repeatedly said last week that Jesus was quoting from Isaiah 66, I misspoke. Uh, He was quoting from Isaiah 61, all right? So if you were looking at your footnotes and you was wondering, what is going on here? Uh, That was my error and not your Bibles, okay? Always assume it's my error, all right, Uh, and not your Bibles. Uh, So follow along as I read, starting in verse 16 down through verse 30. And he, that is Jesus, came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? 
And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land and Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha and none of them was cleansed but only Nahum the Syrian. When they heard these things, all the synagogue, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. <laughs> and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him off the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. And we'll stop there for this morning. Fascinating little passage, huh? If you were here last week, uh, you'll recall that according to the Gospel of John, Jesus spent considerable time between his baptism and our text here this morning conducting his ministry throughout Judea and Jerusalem. There were several things that happened already before uh, this this morning. During that Judean ministry, uh, Jesus was healing people, he was casting out demons, He had overturned tables in the temple, and he was creating a sizable following. In fact, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, there were thousands upon thousands of people that followed him. Tens of, maybe 10, close to 20,000 people actually might have been present uh, when he fed all of the people. It was quite a ministry. Um, But as his ministry progresses, The the crowds get smaller and smaller and smaller. In fact, at the end, he was left with only his disciples. And sadly, even they scattered on the night of his betrayal and arrest. Jesus started his ministry with thousands and he ended alone. Quite the ministry strategy, right? Uh, By today's standards, we would call it an abject ministry failure. And yet Jesus' ministry was anything but a failure. While every human being would either reject Jesus or abandon Jesus, God's love for humanity took Jesus all the way to the cross. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. Our text this morning, this little portion in Luke, is a foreshadowing of that ultimate rejection of the Messiah. Here we see it in his hometown. Jesus has come back. He's come back into his hometown of Nazareth. This was the place where he grew up with his father. He grew up with his mother. He was a carpenter. Uh, Jesus was very familiar with this place. The people were familiar with him. They knew him. He knew them. They know all about him. Um, And it's that familiarity with him that begins to breed contempt in the minds of these villagers. But 
since Jesus was such a widely known teacher, he at this point now, he's well-respected. He's been a miracle worker throughout the region. He was asked to read from the prophets during the morning synagogue worship and then invited to make some remarks about that reading. So they handed him the scroll. It was the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. He opened it to Isaiah 61, and he read a very familiar messianic text. This Isaiah 61 passage that he read would have been very familiar to the Jews. They knew it quite well. In fact, they loved that portion of Isaiah chapter 61 because it it looked forward to the day when that text would be fulfilled in their Redeemer. One who would finally set them free from all of the Roman oppression and and hopefully reestablish Israel as a theocracy that would dominate the world once again. Of course, when Jesus read Isaiah 61, uh, he had much greater and more eternal purposes in mind. He, He had no interest in subjecting people to him through physical force, He wanted to convert people to him through an inward heart change. That was his goal. He wanted the good news of the gospel, uh, his life, his death, his resurrection, to cause people to believe in him. He wanted to liberate people from their bondage to sin, to their bondage to addictions and enslavement. He wanted people to be free to worship him in righteousness. He wanted to open their blind eyes not just physically, but spiritually, so that they could see him, the one that they most desperately needed. Now, would all of those things revolutionize the world? Yeah, they will revolutionize the world. But it will come from internal conversion, not external coercion, you see? So Jesus reads this amazing text from Isaiah. And then he sits down in the teacher's chair to exposit what he's just read. And all the crowd's eyes are fixed on him. Want to know what he's going to say, right? After all, he's a, he's a famous teacher. He's a homegrown, hometown hero. And so whatever he says, no doubt, is going to be massively important, spiritually compelling. So he says in verse 21, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, I am the Messiah. I'm him. I'm the Redeemer. I'm the one that the prophet was talking about. It's me. I'm here to accomplish everything that he said I would accomplish. And as soon as Jesus says, this has been fulfilled in your hearing, you can just imagine the hushed murmuring that begins. What did he say? Did did I hear him right? What can he mean? What's happening here? I've never heard such thing. And at first, they're, they're 
they're wowed. They're, they're in, in shock. They're marveling. They're, this, is, this is something new. This is amazing. And just as quickly as they're trying to wrap their heads around this massive statement that he made, and the excitement is sort of bubbling up to a crescendo, some guy in the back says, isn't that Joseph's son? Matthew, the gospel writer Matthew, adds that they, some other people said, yeah, I know him. Mary's his mom. His brothers and sisters are, are with us. Wait, wait a minute, whoa. Something here doesn't smell right. This feels like a scam. I don't know. This doesn't seem legit to me anymore. And their hearts start to turn. Jesus knows their hearts, and if you look down at verse 23, before they can really rebuke him, he says, you know, doubtless you're going to quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. That's a weird little proverb. What what does it mean? Well, the second part of what he says here in verse 23 kind of explains the, the first part. Remember, they've heard of him. They've heard of the miracles he's been doing around the country. That's no secret. And kind of like a, a sideshow at a circus, what they've heard is intriguing, but a bit unbelievable. And so Jesus knows the next thing that they're going to demand is something like this. All these things that we've heard that you've been doing out there in other places, surely you can do some of those back here at home for your friends and family. Why don't you entertain us with some of your little fancies? Well, here's the problem. What is the purpose of all the miracles and the signs and the wonders that Jesus has been doing all around the country? What is their purpose? Listen, people get this confused all the time. In fact, entire churches, entire ministries, entire denominations make it their end game to just reproduce the miracles and signs and wonders that Jesus performed. But what was the ultimate purpose for which Jesus performed miracles and signs and wonders? Well, the Apostle John tells us explicitly in John 20, verses 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, and here it is, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. What is the purpose of all the miracles? To authenticate Jesus' claim that he is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one who would bring salvation. It was to prove his claims because only he possessed the divine power to do what he said he would do. So what's the problem with the folks here on this bright, sunshiny morning at the synagogue where Jesus is speaking. What's the problem? Well, Jesus points it out in verse 23. He says, quoting them, 
what we have heard you did in Capernaum, do here. Notice they did not say what you did at Capernaum, do here, but rather what we heard you did at Capernaum, do here. They've heard of him. They've been told the stories. They know the miracles. Oh, the rumors have been running wild back here where the roots run deep. The problem is they don't believe him. And especially when he says, I am the Messiah. That's just a little bit too far. They want the show, but they don't want all of the demands that accompany that. They want the miracles, they want to see all the fun stuff, but they don't want to concede his claims of messiahship. You see, unbelief is a stubborn obstacle. So verse 24, Jesus says to them, Truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. You know, people are always more ready to serve strangers than they are people they know. You know that, right? You probably heard the definition of an expert. An expert is someone who is more than 50 miles from home, has no responsibility for implementing the advice he gives, and shows slides. That's an expert, right? What's wrong with this picture here? Jesus is too familiar. And familiarity breeds contempt. They don't like it, that he's trying to get ahead of him. He's just a carpenter. One commentator hit the nail on the head when he said, the source of this lack of honor is often envy. They were envious of Jesus. Who is he that he would have some notoriety? Why should he get the honor? For goodness gracious, he sands wood. What kind of nobility is that? Jesus, you just need to get in your lane, quit acting like a big shot. We all know who you are. There are plenty of others here who can handle the load. We don't need you. I sometimes wonder how often we're guilty of the same thing uh, in our own circles, in our own church. I wonder how many potential elders and deacons and Sunday school teachers and children's ministry leaders that we've passed over because we look at them and we say, ah, I know them. They're just not quite up to par. I ask myself that question too because envy and pride can stand in the way of recognizing talent in other people. And just because someone has grown up with us in our midst all of our lives does not mean that they can't be a great blessing to us. We need to be on the lookout for people that God uses for his glory. In fact, over the next couple weeks and again over the summer when I'm on sabbatical, you're going to see a new face or two up here behind the pulpit. 
And that's fantastic. I'm excited about that. Will they be nervous? Yeah, probably. Will they be as polished as the person who's been doing this for 30 years? Probably not. But can God use them regardless? You bet. You bet so. And I hope that you don't let pride or familiarity or preference make you look down at your nose at that person. Because that's what the folks of Nazareth did. And look what they missed. They missed the Messiah. Jesus is going to now recount two stories from the Old Testament, specifically from 1st and 2nd Kings. So if you want to keep your finger here in Luke and turn back with me in your Bible to 1st Kings 17, and you're going to see the first story that Jesus now reminds these synagogue goers of. It's a story that happened during the prophet Elijah's time, when Elijah was sent to a widow uh, in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. Follow along. I'm going to start reading 1 Kings 17, starting in verse 8. Excuse me, verse 8. I'm going to read down through verse 16. Okay? Here's the story. So that you know what Jesus is talking about, who this widow is he's referring to. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Now quickly, just as a side note, that is an area at the far, far north end of Israel. It's well outside the religious elite section of Jerusalem. Okay, so that's where Elijah is going. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and he went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring to me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. In other words, this widow is getting ready to prepare her last meal for her and her son. Verse 13, And Elijah said to her, Do not fear, go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me, and afterward make something for yourself and your son. Well, that seems a bit presumptuous, right? She just said, this is my last little bit. I'm going to eat it, and me and my son are going to die. And now Elijah's saying, well, that's okay. I'm sorry about that, but make me one first. But then he adds this in verse 14. For thus the Lord, the God of Israel, says, the jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. You can keep taking as much flour out of that jar as you want. You can pour as much oil out of that jug as you want. Neither of them will go dry. The question is, will the widow believe it? Because she's getting ready to pour out what she thinks is the last. 
verse 15, she went in and did what Elijah said. And she and her household, she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. Jesus is standing in the synagogue and he tells the people standing there, you all want to show, you all want to see my miracles, but I'm too familiar to you. You know who I am. You don't believe me. So I'm going to tell you, I'm going to remind you about this little widow lady. Do you remember her? Elijah went to her. You know what happened to that widow lady? Jesus says to them. She was a nobody in the minds of the contemporary culture. She had nothing. But that widow believed Elijah. And because of her belief, she was rewarded. Remember that? I bet it was kind of quiet. So Jesus refers to a second story. Turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 5. This is a story set now in the prophet Elisha. That was Elijah back there. This is Elisha. 2 Kings chapter 5. Follow along as I read the story of this man named Naaman that Jesus references. I'm going to start reading in verse 1 all the way down through verse 14. This whole little story. Naaman commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord, Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read... When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him now come to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean." But Naaman was very angry and went away and said, Behold, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Parfar the rivers of Damascus better than the waters of Israel? Can I not just wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? 
So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored, like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Jesus, standing there in that synagogue this morning, said, Do you remember Nahum? Commander of a foreign army? You know what Nahum did? Naaman? He believed Elisha. And because he believed Elisha, he was restored, he was blessed, he was clean. Jesus gives two references to two different stories in the Old Testament Stories about which the attendees at this synagogue service were surely familiar with. So after Jesus reminds them of that, how do they react? Turn back to Luke. How do they react to that little (laughs) rabbit trail of Jesus back to those two stories? We'll look at verse 28. When they heard these things, story of the widow... Story of Naaman, when they heard these two things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. (laughs) Why? Those are beautiful stories of belief leading to great blessing. What about those stories could possibly elicit such a venomous, volcanic response on this Sabbath day? Well, it was as though Jesus looked at them in the eyes and said, you all want to see a freak show of spellbinding miracles performed by some woodworker down the street. I'm telling you, Gentiles are better at believing than you. They didn't like that. They're ready to kill the man. It's bad enough when one of their own didn't stay down in the fray with them, but then to appeal to God's dealing with Gentiles and somehow show that that was superior to them, that's too much. Jesus was saying to them, God's grace is for all people. And that, was a massive blow to the proud upper crust of spiritual society because the Jews held that they themselves were the descendants of Abraham's promises and they themselves were the exclusive beneficiaries of God's blessings to suggest that a Gentile of all people was included in this promise was an absolute backhanded insult. So, verse 29, they rose up and they drove him out of the town, brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, and they're ready to throw him off the side. Wow. I mean, you would have thought they would have just been upset at him, but in their minds, this is capital punishment. How did they get there? Well, Deuteronomy 13, 1 to 5, was no doubt running thick through their minds. 
If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams rises among you and gives you a sign or wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them, okay, well, pause. Jesus has just done all that. He's been performing signs. He's saying, I'm the Messiah. I'm the God. You need to come after me, okay? Verse 3 you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice, and you shall serve him and hold fast. Hold fast to him. But if that prophet or that dreamer shall be put to death, Because he's taught rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. This congregation is cocked and loaded to purge the evil that they've just heard come from the lips of the man that they perceive to be a false prophet. But was God ready to have his plan of redemption thwarted yet? Nah, not yet. Look at verse 30. But passing through their midst, he went away. (laughs) That's simple. We don't know exactly how that happened. Maybe that was supernatural. They they couldn't see him anymore. Uh, Maybe Jesus just had such a cool and collected manner and he just walked through all the chaos and division that was going on around. We don't know for sure how he walked away, but we do know this. God's plan is never frustrated. God's work is never foiled. It wasn't Jesus' time to die yet. And so Jesus just walked away. God's plan is that all people would come to know the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jew and Gentile included. My fear sometimes is that we, as North American, uh, we become content in our day-to-day lives. We we become so accustomed uh, to our material wealth and our blessings, especially here in beautiful Sarasota, and we forget that there's lost and dying people all around us. They're they're in our school, they're they're in our businesses, they're they're on our street. People are dying every single day without Jesus. And we're content to sit back sometimes, enjoying God's blessings on our lives, forgetting that God has said, no, go and make disciples. Who's the one that God is calling you to speak to this week? Who's the one that you're going to make an effort to engage with this week with the goal of sharing the good news of Jesus Christ? Jesus has just made it abundantly clear that his message is for Jew and Gentile. All people, his grace knows no bounds for anybody who will repent of their sin and believe on Jesus Christ, God will give them eternal life. There is nobody outside the reach of God's grace.
Jesus walked away. And Matthew adds this sad commentary to the conclusion of Jesus' time here in his hometown. Matthew says, And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. And Mark goes on to record, And he marveled because of their unbelief. What a heartbreaking ending to such a wonderful opportunity that these people had on this day. Instead of believing in their Messiah, they tried to kill him. And as far as is known, Jesus never returned to Nazareth. May that tragic ending not be yours today. Turn to him while there's still time. Stand and let's pray. God, thank you for this truth and this reminder that your love and your grace is for everyone. There's no class of people. There's no ethnicity. There's no last name. There's no skin color. There's no way of speaking that is more privileged or less privileged than any other. Your grace, your love is sufficient and available for all. And so I pray that we would take that message of your gospel to all people, to our neighbors, to our classmates, to our friends, to those on our street. We would boldly and joyfully proclaim what Jesus has done, what he has accomplished on the cross and he's risen from the grave. And that we would believe, that we would believe and we'd call other people to believe, that we wouldn't fall into this trap of, these folks in Nazareth and just dismiss Jesus but standing here in front of us today that we would believe on him Father if there's anybody in this room this morning who has never believed on Jesus Christ who has never confessed his or her sin and repented and followed after Jesus would today be that day of salvation God that you would as Isaiah promised open their eyes liberate them from their bondage to sin give them eyes to see ears to hear so that they would follow after you. We love you. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for Jesus. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.